This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. I think um, I'd say one of the biggest takeaways from this book when I was reading is what I would call uh, developing a theology of vocation or theology of work. And I, I love to spend some time I, you know, on this idea. You wrote, just as there's a particular depth of peace that comes from being well-rested, there's a particular and unique joy that comes from being well-spent. Uh, take us a little deeper there into, into your style of work. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening, Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Justin McRoberts. Justin is a songwriter, author with books such as It Is What It Is and May It Be So. He's also a coach for artists, ministers, and entrepreneurs. Justin, thank you for joining the conversation. Happy to be here, man. So pre-record, we were uh, talking about the weather, as all guys do. Uh, and uh, so, you know, for, for our audience, you're in uh, amazing San Francisco Bay Area. 
Uh, While it's raining today, it will be glorious here in the next month or so. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and and what you do. Sure. So uh, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was born in Oakland. And I live um, about 25 minutes inland from Oakland now. Um, I like to be completely honest with you. I love where I live. Uh, and for all the, uh, the, the reasons pertaining to weather and culture. Um, but I've mostly stayed here because of people. So for the longest time, um, for about 20 years, those people were part of a congregation called Shelter Covenant Church or Shelter Vineyard. And I was here because I was part of a church community for, as an elder pastor, um, helped pastor that church for about 20 years. And my mom's here. So I love the Bay. I really do. Um, but mostly because of the people who are here. People kind of keep me not only where I live, but doing what I do. That's where I'm from. Yeah. So you, in other words, you were a Warriors fan back before it was sexy to be a Warriors fan. Oh man. I was a Warriors fan, like pre Baron Davis era, like (laughs) talking, we're talking run, run TMC, uh, back when Goldie, the bear was, uh, was the mascot. I go way, 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 way back. So it's fascinating. I have some friends that, um, pastor up and down the, the West coast and more specifically kind of the Washington, Oregon state area. Yeah. What's always interesting for for us as East Coasters who grew up in you know what a lot of people call the Bible Belt. Now we you know are starting to lean into the more post church culture. You, in many regards, grew up in what a lot of us now deem the post church culture, which is yes. you know California is not exactly saturated with congregational life. Now I want to be careful because there is yeah. a heavy pre- presence of evangelicalism and certainly the Catholic presence there well before evangelicals got there. Yeah. And I don't want, you know, not necessarily leaning into like the godless West Coast, but, you know, to a certain degree, there's, there's an advantage a, yeah. of of ministering in an area that is not so saturated with the church. So I wonder if you'll speak to that in your experience. Absolutely. So I, uh, personal history, so that folks get a little bit more context. So um, I, I came, I started following Jesus because a young life leader stepped into my life when I was in um, junior high school, middle school. And yeah, there like there weren't people like him around. So it wasn't like there was this like there wasn't like a sea of women and men popping onto the junior high school campus trying to do. I didn't have friends who went to youth groups. Like it was this so that someone would take a risk and show up in my life and and offer himself the way he did, where he would come to games, he would come to plays. It was uh, shocking uh, when he told stories about Jesus. I was open to those conversations because I hadn't had them 10 or 12 times um, in, in my in my teen years. Um, and when people talk around here, and this is this is a little cliche. This is almost as cliche as talking talking about the godless West Coast. Um, when people get into conversations about their faith or when people talk about their practice of faith out here, they they mean it. Um, it's it's not a cultural norm, so it's a very real thing when it's real. And the the kind of how should I say this the kind of effort um, what you have to go through in order to have maintain communicate and stay healthy in your practice of faith on the West Coast the rest of the country is catching up um, to how tough in a good way it is to say I follow Jesus I think it's always intended to be that way um, I he never said it would be easy he talked about his yoke being easy and his burden light, but he didn't say there wouldn't be a yoke and there wouldn't be a burden. So 
uh, I like living here in that context as well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your your work and and coaching uh, artists and ministers and and entrepreneurs. Sure. So um, I was on. I graduated from college in uh, nineteen ninety six, and um, I was on Young Life staff for um, four and a half, five years. And really connected with, I, I like people and I like meeting people where they are. Um, so when I started a career in music, it wasn't because I wanted to start a career in music. It was because it was a way for me to meet people somewhere. Uh, mu music was a language for me culturally and emotionally. So I wrote songs, not because I wanted to make records and sell records, um, <laughs> which is great because I didn't sell that many records. Um I wrote songs and made records because I wanted to meet people in their lives somewhere. That story has never really uh, changed. So as I was out on the road, uh, it wasn't just listeners I would run into. I would run into more and more artists or we'd be at churches and I'd be around pastors. And I had also just planted a church and I just continued to have more and more conversations with people. So each, each career job move has parlayed itself into different forms of the same work. And the work being to come alongside people as best I can right where they are and help them do and be uh, what they're supposed to do and who they're supposed to be. So now I work with artists, some of them are musicians, some of them are authors, painters, otherwise, and pastors as a coach. I'll, I'll be 50 this year. And so after the, literally a quarter century of doing a number of those jobs and the same work, I can be helpful. To folks who are trying to do that same work, trying to make music, trying to make some form of career in the arts, trying to make church work uh, in their own context. So I spent a lot of time, uh, most of my time coaching, coming alongside entrepreneurs, ministers, artists, and then writing stories um, and teachings to uh, to back that stuff up, uh, which is where the book Sacred Strides comes from is after literally two decades of working with folks on work and rest rhythms, uh, it was time to assemble a lot of the stories and teachings into one place. So I know we were talking about this pre-record of how we kind of know each other before we get on this and, you know, reflecting back, we actually, we probably actually have more friends in common. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking through some folks like uh, Zach Hunt and, and Trip Fuller and, some folks like yeah. that, that, you know, show that, um, to, to a certain degree where you started off theologically, when you started ministry is a much different place than where you are now. And I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about that and how it's informed, um, the way that you approach, uh, writing and coaching and ministry. Sure. It's a great question. Um, I think the way I'm comfortable saying that is, uh, is less like, is more like it, it, it it was simple theologically. It was simple as a young life person, especially as a teen, you know, 18, 19 years old, I'm starting to read the scriptures and starting to listen to people talk about Jesus, starting to pray and have, you know, prayerful encounters with the spirit of God. Theology was relatively simple and then it got complicated and it's simple again. <laughs> I think it's probably really like, I'm much more comfortable now 
with my limitations of knowledge that theological conversations are enjoyable uh and um but boy uh they're conversations and the fullness and the reality of who god is in christ and how the spirit of christ works in the world I, those are things that are better witnessed and examined and celebrated um and and discussed in humility uh than they are things decided upon and um fought over so it was simple at the beginning uh it was jesus um who was sent by the father and then and then gave us the spirit and uh and then it got complicated for a, a good stretch of time and now i'm just way happier to be back in a place of relative simplicity i know very very few things for sure um about how god works and who god is um those things are grounding uh, and really really important uh, and trustworthy and beyond those things um like i'm happy to have conversations but i'm not going to i'm not going to make a whole lot of decisions on on christ's behalf much less define a whole lot of my relationships around like who's decided the same things i have we can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors baptist seminary of kentucky how does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry more and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. So you have a new book, um, Sacred Strides. This book invites readers to find the balance between work and rest. You wrote, so I don't want to just learn how to work well and wisely, nor do I simply want to learn how to rest what I want is to live a full life with God, both in work and in rest, and want to share the same for you. Yeah. Um, this book is is as much of a memoir as a, as a guide to readers. Uh, yeah. Jog us through your story as it relates to this book. Sure. Um, I, I The book kind of follows a little bit of a, a historical arc um, and beginning with my relationship with my dad and watching him in work mode. I really admired my dad's work ethic. Um, I, I write a little bit about this in the book that, I, I mean, I remember being awake in the morning and watching him get ready for work and just even the routine of shaving and putting on aftershave and the suit and the tie, there was something like almost superhero-like about it. That here's this man who's gonna get in the car and go drive to an office and make decisions and, and shape you know, I wouldn't have said it at the time, but like shape culture and help people. Um, I was really moved by his work ethic. And that, that same thing lives in me. He loved his job. Um, he loved to work. Uh, he worked a lot. I also loved to work. And it, it, it was, it is a way to be fully alive, which is the invitation of, uh, of Christ is life to the full. Uh, in the set, in the tenth chapter of John, um, the mistake he made, which is also the same the same mistake I've made multiple times, which is it becomes I, 
I divorce the, the, the work of my life from the joy of that work and just simply count it in responsibility that I've got to work. Um, and I, and I lose touch with that invitation. That's worked itself out a little bit over time and in guidance um, as I've had multiple jobs uh, in multiple settings and fallen back in love with work. So I tell one story, uh, and this is one of those key moments um, in in my journey. This is probably the best way to, to do this. I was um, I was invited to uh, to lead songs on this retreat um, in Mexico. Uh, and this was, um, this is not too long after I lost my dad to depression, to suicide. My dad got to a place where that, that hyper responsibility, um, weighed him really, really heavily down. And when his job shifted change, he lost a, a job. Um, he'd so over identified with the responsibility part um, and the obligation part of his, uh, of his job that like when he lost that job, he lost himself. And so he ended his life shortly thereafter. I'm, I'm working through all of that, all of the things that come with having watched my dad end his own life. And as I was invited to go, um, lead songs on this, this retreat and, uh, on the way down, I'm being told about my job. I didn't know what I was doing when I said yes, which is <laughs> the significant part of my career path as, as well as just saying yes to things and then working it out as, the, as they uh, unfold. So on the way to Mexico from the Bay Area, it's like a 12 and a half, 13 hour drive. And two things become clear. One is like, I've, I've, I've said yes to a kind of substantial job. It's a, it's a lot. It's like, this, it's the chapel in the morning, it's chapel in the afternoon, and there's a thing in the evening and then in between, I'm I'm visiting sites and meeting other pastors in the area, et cetera. And then the leaders of this trip tell me that they they ask me like, are you are you going to do the the I think they call it midnight club. I can't remember what it's it's in the book, but I can't remember what it was. And the midnight club was basically at the end of the day, this group of people, this group of leaders, they would they wouldn't actually go to sleep, and for for five full days they'd stay up all night. Uh, and not sleep and and stay up and and debrief talk pray and then you know at come come around six o'clock get ready for the 7 a.m chapel morning by the end of that work week after doing chapel in the morning afternoon evening visiting with people hanging with kids and then staying up all night to pray i was super super exhausted and i was so fully alive at the same time like i loved where my energies had been spent. I liked how spent I was. That being alive, being fully alive sometimes means being really well, if not really fully spent. So it was different than the kind of like being up all night for a couple of nights trying to beat Super Mario Brothers when I got that game in junior high school. It was the kind of exhausted and tired I, that comes from giving myself away uh, as an act of worship, as an act of love. And so I that that experience marked a, a, a love for work and a love for, and a feel for that kind of deep connection with Christ, with others and with myself that I can only experience in work. Same story. Once I got all the way home, after quite literally drooling on someone's shoes on an airplane on the, on the way home, because I was slumped over asleep, the kind of rest I experienced was 
deep rest and was peaceful rest because I was received by God that I, I didn't, I didn't have to, there was nothing to move on to. I, I was, I, because I knew that the father was pleased with me, then when I laid down, I could just lay down and sleep and wake up when it was time for me to wake up. That correlation um, between giving myself fully to God and then being able to actually fully rest in that you know historical moment, again, marked what I would want to pursue over the course of the rest of my vocational life leading up till now. I want to be fully alive. I don't want to just work and achieve things. I don't want to work and just make good products, maybe even great products, hopefully. I don't also just want to be really well balanced and 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 well rested and and clear minded. I want to experience the love of Christ. I want to experience the love of God in my life. I I want to know that I'm beloved and fully alive in that love. And I experience that in both rest and in work, and namely in the rhythm between those two things, just like in that story from Mexico. You've written some curious things um, in here that I'm shocked that your publisher allowed you even write that oh, really? nothing about okay. this book is, you, you write, nothing about this book is unpredictable. You even, um, you know, put down words that most people know, uh, and you say that like rest, Sabbath, utility, work versus job, belovedness. Um, but you wrote, this book is about discovering and learning to practice wholeness that cannot be achieved only by action. It cannot be established only through contemplation. So I wonder, kind of knowing, as you're saying, hey, I'm going to say some things that you know, but like, but you're also trying to show something different. So what do you think that that difference is that you're trying to convey through this book? And and what's the motivation behind it? Um, it's mostly a decision to trust my reader. So in other words, um, I, I like, I think I can, you mentioned a second ago that it's, it's as much memoir as, as it is any sort of guide. I can't do much through a book to actually affect change in someone's life. That's I, what I can do. Maybe if I do my job well is, uh, is provide a tool by which there's like maybe some clarity in language or a bit of inspiration through story that makes someone either aware of or more open to uh, or more prepared for the work that's already happening in their lives. So in other words, the, the what what I'm trying to do with really anything artistically these days is, is provide tools that help clarify and uh, help clarify and inspire the ongoing work of the spirit of Christ in the lives of readers and listeners. I cannot write a book that unlocks someone's soul. That's the work of God in that person's life. And that's the thing I'm trying to trust. So is there anything like fundamentally brand new, no one's ever heard before? Absolutely not. But what I hope to do is tell stories and and include bits of teaching that provide the kind of language that uh, as a reader works through this book, they think that's that's the, that's the word I needed. I think that's what's going on in me. And that allows them to either sit in prayer with with the spirit or work through it with their therapist or sit down with their family and say, this is what's going on or work with their spiritual director, but to actually provide tools that help people in the work that is going on already in their lives, as opposed to feeling like I'm gonna kickstart that work with a book. I think that's what you're asking. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. 
We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. I think um, I'd say one of the biggest takeaways from this book when I was reading is what I would call uh, developing a theology of vocation or theology of work. And I, I love to spend some time I, you know, on this idea. You wrote... Just as there's a particular depth of peace that comes from being well-rested, there's a particular and unique joy that comes from being well-spent. Uh, take us a little deeper there into, into your style of work. My style of work, that's a great question. Um, I have been fortunate um, and at times, I, I guess fortunate's the, the way I, I want to say that. Um, I, I, feel, I feel fortunate in this that I've I've taken the risk since early in my vocational path to pursue jobs and work that actually lit me up. In other words, um, I want to do things that make me feel fully alive, not because it's some sort of hedonistic pursuit of like, I just want to do stuff that makes me feel good, but because I actually believe this, I am the gift I get to offer my world. I'm the gift I get to give through the through my job that the real work is the giving of my whole self to my world immediate and beyond. Again, that's that's one of the bits that my dad missed was to him, the ball game was provision, was putting dollars and cents in the bank so that we could pay for things. That's not a bad thing, but I would trade every ounce of ease that came from him having a paycheck, uh, a substantial paycheck for part of his life I traded every bit of that to have him in my life now so that he would know my daughter, he would know my son, that he would be present in my life. He was the gift. Um, so anyone else could have provided, but only my dad could have been my dad. I am best suited in the world if I'm doing my work. I'm best, my best work, you know, capital W work in the vocational sense is the offering of myself and my soul to my world. If I can find ways to do that, where um, more purely and more joyfully then I'm going to do that. So that by the time I'm done with my, <laughs> with my, the work era of my life, maybe in my eighties or nineties, we'll see, I will have given every ounce of myself that I can possibly give. I wouldn't have just done jobs. So my style, mostly I, I, I'm chasing joy, not so that I can feel good 
and happy and but instead so that I can give myself away as an act of worship. So uh, pastoring a church, it wasn't this you know dream I had. It was the best way for me to give myself as uh, a way to my uh, immediate world, to my local world for the 20 years that I got to to do that or help do that. In the same way that music, um, I loved playing music. I don't do it as much anymore. And the reason I moved away from it is because it was no longer the best way for me to offer myself. Part of how I understand that, part of how I noticed that if like the, a season has come to an end or a season has, be, season has begun, is I note the joy in my own spirit that says, I think we can fully be alive in that mode by writing books, running a podcast, by coaching. If I am fully alive and, and in joy in a, in a job, it allows me to actually do the work of my life, which is to give myself away. That's my style. You go on to write, I think the real problem with hustle and productivity culture is in general, isn't an overemphasis on work or even a push to put a lot of hours into one's work. Where I think hustle and productivity go wrong is a subtle promise that if you're yourself and effective enough, it earns you the right to be loved. The belovedness can be established in and through usefulness. Walk us through what you mean by by hustle and, and productivity culture. Um, you may know uh, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm a fan. I love his stuff. Um, he's part of a culture of people um, who are focused primarily on getting people working. Um, and uh, there are, and you know, the, the memes nowadays, like the, the sort of the, the pushback jokes uh, towards productivity culture, and it's, they, they're pretty accurate, is like the dude uh, in an Instagram reel is like, I wake up at 3.30 in the morning, I, I, I jump in a pool of ice, and I'm I ice by I you know take my ice bath for five minutes and I get out and then I do a seven you know seven mile run and then I'm in the office and I'm making calls and it's this image of a life that's just like in like a constant motion and the image of a life in which I'm constantly creating I'm constantly producing. Um, I don't actually have a problem with the drive to like be in shape to like work long hours. Um, I think the the miss there is that that's an, that it's it's a fine image. It's just not all of it. Um, so you know, this is the way I, you know the from uh, from the part of the story you just read. It, it's just a, I, I go on to say, when my dad left his impoverished and abusive home just after high school, I think he went in search of places and ways to experience the belovedness that his upbringing last he, uh, lacked. What he was promised by the industry. And the industry cultures that greeted him was, John, if you do these things and do them well, you will have loved your family. In return, you'll become lovable and loved yourself. The promise of Christ is that we get to be fully alive. Any other promise, any other culture will provide like shadows of that promise. So there is something to hustle culture saying, get off your butt, put more hours in. If you want that dream to come true, you've got to put the hours in. That's not wrong. It's just not everything in the same way that like the the other side of that coin wants to make an enemy of work that the real problem is that we all just work too much i just don't think that's actually true uh, i think it has to do with context 
it's knowing what it is we're chasing. When I want to be productive, I think part of what my soul is desiring is I want to contribute to the world around me and be part of positive change. I want to be part of making a difference in people's lives. I think that's the desire of the kingdom making itself manifest in my heart, my soul, and my mind, and in my body. It gets misinterpreted by hustle culture that identifies that energy and wants to make something else of it. But I, I do think that that desire is actually a desire to work as a kingdom worker. It's a, it's a, it's a kingdom-shaped desire. I don't have a problem with hustle culture in and of itself. It just needs to be contextualized by wholeness and by belovedness. Yeah, so let's go a little deeper there. You you conveyed um, in our conversation in the book that you believe in time being well spent in workflow. At, at the same time, not everyone knows their boundaries when it comes to these things, yep. potentially leading people to what some might label as uh, workaholics or for some burnout. So, so what are the guardrails you've built to help uh, you know if you're trending towards either of these things? The, pr- the predominant guardrail is not one I put up. It's the fourth commandment, which is to Sabbath. The, the fact that the Sabbath is a commandment um, provides the primary guardrail. That if I am commanded by God to take 52 days every year off the calendar and simply off them to God and remove myself from my work context, that is, again, not a philosophical um a boundary or guardrail. That's a practical and practiced and embodied uh, boundary and guardrail. Sabbath keeping puts me in a posture to not to, to puts me in a posture to actually receive uh, the love of Christ as I stand still, so that when I re-enter the work world, I'm more grounded in who I am in Christ. That's not a job I can achieve on my own. I can't pull that off in 15 minutes. On, you know, on the way to work or on the elevator or as I sit in my car before I go to the office. Um, the primary guardrail when it comes to work, to overwork, to over-hustle and over-identification with my own work is the gift and the commandment of Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. There are other things that come that, that I can that, that I can and do, and I'm happy to talk about them, put into place. I think all of them lack the proper energized power if I'm not keeping the Sabbath. I can, I can do my best to create boundaries in my life, but if I'm not rooted in Christ in the way that God's asked me to be rooted in Christ, which is by keeping the Sabbath, those things all become stopgap measures and they all run out of energy at some point. I have to keep the Sabbath. That is the guardrail. Let's go back to this idea of a belovedness. Uh, what, what do you mean by it and why is it critical to this conversation? Everything God has done um, and uh, and is doing and will do um, is simply a matter of and an expression of God's love. So when I'm called to work, I'm invited into the work by God who, who has established all things, is holding all things together and will reconcile all things to himself. I'm not, and this is so cliche at this point, but like I'm not needed. Like God doesn't need me to achieve the ends of his kingdom work. He invites me in because he loves me. He invites me into the work of the kingdom as an act of love that he lovingly shares his life with me. He actually he he lovingly invites me to share in his life with him. So work, my participation in the in the kingdom of God as uh, as I work is a participation in the love of God. It's not a necessary act that holds things together. That's God's job. 
I get to respond to the love of God by working alongside God and having Christ in the spirit work through me in the same way. One, I'm divided to rest because God wants me to pull those 52 days a year off the calendar and say, in the same way that I invited you into work because I love you, why don't you just sit down and rest and sit with me because I love you? Um, I'm invited to rest, not because it's a counterbalance to work, but because it is a way to participate in the love of God. I would even go so far as to say that if I'm, if, if, and I've lived this way for a long time, if I'm resting, just because I'm tired, um, then my rest is contextualized by my work life. And I'm primarily identifying myself as a worker. But if my rest is contextualized by obedience to God and Christ and submitting myself to and receiving his love, that becomes a, like a more comprehensive and like deep soul rest. I'm actually resting in the love of God. And so in the same way that I'm working in the love of God, if I miss that, then this is where we get into the to the weird competition competition and tension, uh, not tension, the weird competition competition and like um, false balance between work and rest, between action and contemplation. Where as the way um, Parker Palmer puts it is is the both of those both work and rest, both action and contemplation, st- uh, uh, spring from a desire to be fully alive, and then return me to that desire to be fully alive. I, re, I, I rephrase that fully alive uh, Parker Palmer quote and call that belovedness. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. So, uh, belovedness, um, if we're not careful, can sound very egocentric. Um, and the last thing we need in American America's already me centric Christianity is, is more people thinking that this is the point of Christianity, that this is just about a personal relationship with God. So how does the idea of belovedness, um, this idea of uh, a theology of vocation fit into being part of a, a local community of, of beloved, the church? What, what role does the church play in this conversation? If I, if, and well, first of all, I mean, uh, my and part of what you get in the book is part of how I come to most of these like <laughs> bits of wisdom. Uh, I work these things out with other people in conversation. So I'll have a story. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the name of the person who wrote it. it might have been John Dewey. That it's not it's not experience that actually you know that actually teaches us things. It's 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 reflection upon experience. I, I don't remember the exact quote, but something along those lines. Which means that even as I'm experiencing my own life in work and in rest, I can observe that, but it's really, like I can be in it, but it's really in observation and conversation with other people uh, that I actually start to see my own life. So part of what you get through the course of the book, conversations I've had with other people, moments I've had with other people, it's why I coach. Heck, it's why I wrote the book. 
is so that in conversation with one another, we see ourselves more clearly. I don't see myself clearly. I don't see my work uh, overbound, you know, my overcommitment to work or over-identification with work until or unless someone helps me see that. Therapists, spiritual directors, community. Um, the other part of it is, is as I recognize myself as beloved or as I recognize myself, myself, recognize myself as, you know, needing uh, grace, if that's true of me, then it's going to be true also of my neighbor. It's part of how I understand my humanities. If this is true of me, if it's true of me that I'm fundamentally loved in and through all aspects of my life, then that would also be true of the person next to me. And if I know that about myself, and this is how the nature of the work of the love of Christ works, as I know about that about myself, I want to share that with the folks around me and not simply as a matter of, of communication or proclamation. I want the folks around me to feel loved, to be loved. Part of how the love of Christ manifests itself in our hearts, souls, minds, and bodies is that we naturally, supernaturally desire to bring reconciliation and hope and goodness and blessedness and food to our neighbors. It's actually how it naturally happens. It's the way it's designed. It happens in community because it's how the love of God is actually shaped in our hearts. So I don't fear... I, I don't fear individuality uh, or... Um, that doesn't scare me as much. Like I think at, if and as we have full-blown, 100%, no joke, actual encounters with Christ, um, I think that actually makes itself manifest in in sincerity um, and sincere love and interest and care for my neighbor. I'm willing to take the risk, I would say, instead of someone moving, you know, yeah, if someone making it about their, their personal relationship with Jesus. I don't think I make that much room for that in the book, but let's say they do. Okay, I'll take that chance. I'll take the chance on something moving on someone entering or moving closer to Christ in hopes that they have a deeper, you know, just personal relationship with Christ. And then trust that as they have an actual encounter with Christ, Christ will do the work of cracking their hearts open in compassion uh, and mercy for their neighbor. Conversations uh, around self-care are are more prevalent today than they were many years ago. Um, people who work hard and effectively and efficiently are often people who have an area of their life they focus on to relieve stress. For me, that's that's exercising. Um, so taking this a step further, um, you know, as I indicated, it's, it's easy to fall in, uh, into a self-care regimen for one aspect of your life, such as physical health. So when you talk about Sabbath and care for for the body, what are some ways that people can can, can focus in on that? Uh, ask the question again. What do you mean ways people someone can focus in on that on self on self on self care on practicing self care and practicing Sabbath? Yeah. So um, this goes back to your question before. Is one of the reasons I in seasons when I have not cared well for myself. Um, I have needed the help of folks around me, loving, caring, wise people around me to help note, uh, like here's here's an area in which you were lacking. In other words, like I part of why I don't practice, part of why I don't take care of myself is because I don't see myself as clearly. So it takes someone else helping us uh, to get us to a place of uh, of wholeness with regards to a pra practice of rest. So as I or if I 
was to decide to practice the Sabbath, what one of the questions that comes up, and this happens all the time when I'm when I'm coaching folks, is like, so what do I do on the Sabbath? Well, work that out with someone else. Uh, sit down with a sit down with a spiritual director, pastor, a, a group of uh, members of your community, and map out a little bit of a plan for what you might do and how you might practice the Sabbath, and then check back in with that same group of people and say this works, this doesn't work. The idea that I would know myself well enough. If I'm living in patterns of uh, in unhealthy patterns, the fact that like in the, the idea that in a moment I would be like, well, this is what I need to do to be healthy, misses the you know the, the whole point of like the practice of health health, which is that uh, I learn myself again. Part of why I'm unhealthy is because I understand myself improperly. I see myself in the wrong shape. I practice that wrong shape. It takes undoing that over the course of time. So I'm not going to know exactly how to take care of myself just because I was inspired by a, a, a meme or a, even like a, you know, like a well-curated Instagram feed. I'm going to have to work that out. What's it look like for me to be healthy? Uh, my wife, you know, you mentioned exercise, same, same, taking care of myself. I need, I, like, I need to get outside. I need to exert myself. I need to go lift something, throw some stuff around. My wife's not that person, but for a season, for a long season, she felt like you know, she had to be doing this, that, and the other physically exercise the whole nine. And it took, I don't know, a couple of years and conversations with other friends of hers. And she was like, this is, this is the thing you're just doing out of obligation, but there's, it, it you're not, you're, you're not experiencing the, you know, transformation in your soul around exercise. And so th that's not part of her self-care thing. This is the thing she does out of obligation. Self-care for her has way more to do with, long periods of silence and and taking walks and being entirely by herself as a mother of two that makes a whole lot of sense so self-care one of the mistakes the self-care self-care culture propagates is the idea that in a moment of inspiration i'm suddenly aware of all the things that i need that's just not how it works it's a practice you figure it out over time. You try some stuff. It works. It doesn't work. You do the next thing that works. This thing doesn't work. And then you work that out with other folks around you who say, hey, Justin, I think, you know, this is what I'm experiencing in you. I wonder if you need to maybe try this and then try that. It's not an instantaneous thing that happens in the moment. It's happened, it happens in time over practice. So this, this book is more than just, you know, self-care guide. This book is a memoir. It it's so uh, visceral as you talk about the experience of, of losing your father and learning as a father and as a husband yourself. Uh, what what's your hope for your readers? I think um, it, it's a book that I hope meets a particular moment uh, culturally. I think it's got some legs on it for for the long haul. But I think the particular moment we're in, I hope it provides language for readers to first and foremost not have to choose between becoming uh, a you know a religious sage or becoming um a successful entrepreneurial worker bee but instead to like have language for what's happening exactly in their life as their life is to look at the work in front of them um and reapproach that work with the hope of and eyes for the love of God in their hearts, their souls, their minds, their lives, and in their work. And also to take the challenge 
of rest. And here, that that exhaustion, the conversation they continue to have with their with a neighbor, with their workmates, in which they're saying like, "I'm tired all the time," that that's actually an invitation as well. That you can you can be a hyper responsible person, and you don't have to just make a joke of your exhaustion. You can hear that as an invitation of God that you were shaped a certain way with limitations. And then as you embrace those limitations, what you won't find in Christ is a condemnation of your limitations or your humanity. That you get tired is an invitation of God for you to just come home and be fully human and be fully alive. I want to provide language for folks to hear the invitation of Christ in love to say, come work with me and let me pour you out onto this world as a gift, and as an offering, and then come home and rest with me and receive my love regardless of what you're able to accomplish or not accomplish. But in both places, be met by me in love and in care. Our guest is Justin McRoberts. The book is Sacred Strides. You can stay connected with him by visiting justinmcroberts.com. Justin, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to reach out, touch, be energized, inspired, and shaped by that which is permanent, the love of God. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.